acting in the movies is like a cold. You get used to both after a while. Mabel Normand Chapter 25 In 1948, the government broke up the Hollywood studio's monopoly on trade practices and entertainment distribution. The case was referred to as the United States versus Paramount Pictures. It was the last time there was any meaningful regulation of the industry, and they've, hold on, we've been trying to find our way around it ever since. I turned 39 in the year 2000, and Bob Brown handed me the keys to the kingdom. I became the CEO of Studio Name Redacted. On that occasion, I remember he told me the following, with a mix of exuberance and relief. You know, once I flew to Central America to meet with an entrepreneur on behalf of the studio. This guy, this guy was making noises about a takeover. He was one of those shits that had a bundle of cash where his heart should have been. Christ almighty, he was a piece of work. There was a parking space for his yacht in the living room. He had a private menagerie of predators. <laughs> Don't ask me what he fed him, Billy. Don't ask me. And he bragged about having 27 children. I asked him how many boys and how many girls, and this billionaire bellows, 27 children, 27 sons. A man has sons. Eh, the furniture we were sitting on was this gruesome, gold-encrusted garbage. He was watching some white stallions being paraded over his lawn, and I thought to myself, this fucking SOB, he'll never touch my studio. I have daughters. A man has daughters. At around the same time, I had a friend who took me aside and looking into my face like he was delivering a benediction said, Always remember, always think, in every bind, whenever you doubt, what would Catherine Hepburn do? It's always worked for me. That friend was an actor turned writer turned director with my assistance. His name was Antoine Benton. I had met him when he had a bit part in one of Cooper's films, and we had formed an immediate bond. I loved that he blatantly cultivated a larger-than-life image, as opposed to most of the men I knew who tried to appear subtle. And he spoke openly and constantly about everything that crossed his mind. Or so I thought. He spent a not inconsiderable stretch of years in the early part of our friendship, when he was in between acting gigs and I was an assistant, flitting from one architectural roost to another in search of an aesthete's perfect pad. His first was a one-bedroom studio designed by Rudolf Schindler on a busy street in Silver Lake. It was noisy, a little shabby, but it had a pedigree. And ancestral lineage, even of the bricks-and-mortar sort, meant a lot to him. You'll notice I make no comment on snobbery. This was a part of him one simply had to respect or at least put up with. Gifted with a glib tongue, he moved quickly from never-featured actor to production assistant to assistant director, and rapidly ascended the dating scale, as he saw it, from the cute craft service gal who brought cucumbers sushi snacks to camera at four in the afternoon to the daughter of a producer. Everything was meteoric with Antoine. His love life, his career, his quick adaptation to style and circumstance. Where do I insinuate myself firmly into Antoine's story? I think right about here. 
We were friends for some unfathomable reason. Well, that's not exactly candid of me. We were close friends because my ascent in films intrigued him. My quiet onset demeanor had impressed him, and he was perfectly clear when the time came that my position as a newly minted studio head made me all the more worthy of devotion. Does that sound callous? I suppose it does. It doesn't mean I didn't care for him or Antoine me. Yet, in large part, I think our early fascination with each other had to do with the novelty the other presented. It meant he could tell me stories when we met of waking up on location somewhere across the Pacific with two bedmates he didn't recognize, and I would gasp and say I hoped he had used a condom. He would recount evenings on hallucinogens, speaking to ancient spirit guides, and I would ask what they were wearing. Toga? Buckskins. What? As his career began to take off and mine was soaring in very lofty air around the time Cooper was in New Zealand, he would invite me over for large dinner parties telling me to arrive precisely 45 minutes early, enlist me to assist in the final prep, disparage my knife skills, and while draining a glass of tonic water, he would wipe his forehead and take over whatever task he had set for me but the meals he prepared were delicious, and I liked being relieved of authority in very finite, controlled settings. That this was a trait I had in common with others in management, Antoine pointed out when we had the following conversation. Do you know Phil Malore? I shook my head. He mirrored my head shake, accompanied by a huff and a practiced eye roll. Really? You should. One of his canvases is hanging in the lobby of your corporate offices. I tried to picture it. Is it the one with all those color fields, like gold and green and pink, with a tiny line of turquoise blue on the top? It's got some corny name, like California Dreaming? That's the one. So I was staying at his studio, house-sitting years ago. It was on Venice Boulevard, down where all the shops are now. But then it was all industrial and artist spaces. Anyway... I was working on the show and we were on nights, so I had to sleep all day. But by the time I closed my eyes in the morning, there was always this racket from the building next door. It was a Quonset hut, blank, blacked out windows, a rusted metal door that looked like it hadn't opened in five years. Anyway, there was this clanking and spraying and sloshing and more spraying. It went on, it went on for a couple of hours every weekday until about 10 a.m. And then it would all go quiet. They had a parking lot that would fill up at lunchtime with all these Hollywood midlife crisis cars that would all be gone after an hour. So I got out of bed this one time when it was driving me crazy and I waited until there was a lull in the noise and I went down and I yelled through the gate. A man and a woman, covered in tattoos, tank tops and jeans soaked with water, their bodies, he shivered. Anyway... They came up to the gate, I, and I told them I was house-sitting for their neighbor. They knew Phil, and they were nice and outgoing, and they told me to say hi. I finally got around to asking, what goes on here? And they said they were cleaning the equipment for their business. Or, as they explained, their enterprise was a convenient locale where men of means could come and be discreetly disciplined. You mean like spanked kind of disciplined? Once again, I was not shocked, just interested. Like a 
paddle palace? I would never call that place a palace, but yeah, sure, paddling among other things. Suddenly, all the Porsches and Ferraris and Aston Martins in the parking lot for only an hour midday made a lot of sense. I figure we're just a short drive away from all the West Side Studios, and I realize if I really wanted to get a movie going on my own, pretty much all I'd have to do was wander through the parking lot next door at lunch and take down license plate numbers. So that's the plan. To which Antoine replied, I know I can rarely rattle you, but no, even I wouldn't do something that creepy. Besides, you're going places, and I prefer doling out discipline in the kitchen. Aren't you candid? Sometimes. We had a nice rapport without a whisper on either of our parts of anything sexual. We just got along. Did I find it piquant that the first-to-arrive guests at his dinner parties were always a little startled by my presence? I have to admit, I did. Did his attitude toward me change when I started to climb even higher in Hollywood than he? Not a bit. Or perhaps that was a typically male response to feminine ascendance. Cooper, when my career peaked, merely remarked, I guess if you really are the chief, I have to stop calling you that. Were they ignoring the new sheriff or just letting me know everything between us would remain the same? Or perhaps it was much more naughty than I thought. Eventually, Antoine bought a house in one of the canyons with a stone pond in the back where the raccoons fed on the carp he replaced season after season. A gas barbecue and a smoker and a dining room that could seat a crowd. Once he explained to me that cooking was an everyday transformative act. A paradox he delighted in proving. Antoine had a reverence for the old and forgotten of Hollywood. He would, on rare enchanted evenings, invite someone to join us that had peaked in an era well before either of us were born. The actors would delight in the attention. The people who had worked behind the scenes were somewhat more bemused by their evening out. But then, once you got them going, their stories were astonishing. One guest related the tale of a designer so rattled by a tyrannical director's demands, he had to be driven away from an Irish castle screaming and delivered directly to a mental ward. Another told us of a prop man who was pressured to make a battle scene look more realistic, who had pulled a gun out and shot eight horses. At one particular dinner, a tired banker, who referred to her brief career on screen as distressing, told us she quit the business when a married studio boss impregnated her best friend. Her best friend was one of the most photogenic people alive. She filled theater seats and men's fantasies. She was delightful, smart as a whip, and like a man, had no compunction about sleeping with anyone she liked. She would have liked to have a baby, but the studio boss decided it would be bad for her career and his standing. He arranged for the star to be admitted to the hospital for an emergency appendectomy, and the pregnancy was terminated. The press was invited to photograph her during recovery, surrounded by bags of fan mail and flowers. She, of course, looked preternaturally radiant in the pages of the evening newspapers, and she confided to her best friend she wanted to die. 
After that meal, when I was the sole remaining guest, we went into the kitchen to make coffee. Antoine sniffed at two blends of beans in brown paper bags, selected one, handed it to me, and said, Can you make coffee? I poured the coffee into the grinder and started the motor whirring. He nudged me out of the way, picked up the grinder, gave it a shake, and then started slapping it. I looked at him. He raised his voice over the buzz. Like patting a baby. You pat a baby like that and you'd end up in jail. Well, not 1930s jail, but now jail. Antoine, the preferred grind achieved, leaned back against a honey-colored butcher's block. What's it like? Jail? Having a baby. I crossed my arms in front of me. Nobody's ever asked me that before. You mean giving birth or... Look at you, Miss Body Language. Yeah, I mean giving birth. Was it rough? The glint of steel knives caught my attention. There were whirls etched into the blades where they'd been sharpened, and they were mounted on magnetic strips above the butcher block on the wall. Then I noticed everything in the room was similarly organized and sorted by size on open shelves. A plate rack to the left of the sink. To the right, coffee mugs on hooks. Under the coffee mugs was a drawer that slid out that had contained the grinder and several bags of coffee and tea. No, I wouldn't use the word rough. It was something else, I said. Tell me, said Antoine as he poured the hot water from a kettle over the coffee grounds. Noting the arrangement of the kitchen, I traced a finger in the air that took in the room's circumference. It's nothing like this. Through the window above the sink, ink-blot trees blended into a darkening sky. It doesn't have any order. You can't sort it or quantify it. I can't explain it. Antoine set a timer for four minutes. Precision was key. Try. I continued. It wasn't a complicated birth. I was young. I was... It was a force. A force that passed right through you. You couldn't control it. You had to flow with it. You had to weather it. It made you feel like you'd contracted to a single dense atom, and in another second you were spread out across the universe. The effort, the effort was everything. It's all that existed. I, I remember my breathing sounded like yelling, and I was breathing a lot. He smiled. And then there was Jake, I said. Do you want half and half? Yes, please. Antoine's upper body was developed. His waist was small, and he stood about six foot two. As he listened to me, his cheeks were flushed and his skin glowed. His high color and air of anticipation made him look like he was readying to leap from a racing block. I said, mm, before I make it all sound too mystical, I didn't say there were also slithering gobs of tissue. Lots of amniotic liquid, gunk, and blood. Antoine said, If you're trying to gross me out, it's not working. You know when there's a newborn in a movie, I continued? We get a two, maybe three-week-old baby, and then there's a nurse that comes in, and, and to make the baby look like it's just slid down the birth canal, the nurse warms up cream cheese and jelly and rubs it all over the baby. Cream cheese and jelly. It's sweet. You can smell it on set. Dairy and sugar and red currants. In real life, if there's any scent at all, it's like 
like water with a touch of iron. You know what I mean? He would. When Anton was young, he swam competitively. As an adult, he swam laps whenever he could. He went to the refrigerator and opened the door, reached in and got the half and half, bottled in a glass pint. I was wondering if his books were alphabetized and his sock drawer was color-coded when he said, Billy, do you want to marry me? I don't think you love me, Antoine. He set the bottle on the counter. I could see he was doing simple tasks to tamp down whatever was burning inside him. No, I, I don't. And you don't love me, but we'd make good partners. And we'd make great babies. Do you want to have another baby? I don't know. I'm pushing 40. My job just got 10 times more complex. Hmm. I'm 36. There's some Italian woman who had one in 63. Antoine was pouring the coffee, and he glanced up at me, a quirk to the corner of his mouth. Maybe you're saying Jake was enough. That's the thing. Every baby is enough. I don't even know if you can say you make them like it's your agency, claiming you figured out how to produce a miracle. It's more like fate and luck, and when they're born, you just hope you get along with this mysterious stranger that's wrestled its way out of you. And then whoosh, I mean, you love them, but it's almost like you catch them, you keep them. Antoine snorted a laugh. You what? You catch them, you keep them. You set this creature going. It lands in your lap, so to speak, and now you're responsible for them for the rest of your life. I'd like that. The last of the luster in his eyes was dimmed with a slackening in his face, a visible laxity, like a broken fever. He handed me a cup of coffee. Are we cool? I asked, knowing that we weren't. I believe, Billy, you are the last person I know who uses that word. Yes, we are more than cool. Why do I feel like a jerk? Antoine, I'm sorry. No worries, Billy. There's nothing to be sorry for. On the contrary, there were things to be sorry for. In the year 2000, I wasn't much of a louse, at least in a business sense. I wasn't long from work on the set where communal arts and graceful interaction were prized. The skill set that saw me through production was very different than what was later demanded by stockholders and top brass. As the years passed and my job honed in on entrepreneurial risks and fiduciary duties, I got... The word cooties keeps coming to mind, and while I know it's childish, it does describe a lack of rectitude that continues to make me itchy and feel in need of a good scrub. During that less-than-lousy period, Antoine directed his first film, courtesy of me. I remember they shot late on Christmas Eve, so I snuck over to his magnificent nest with a basket that I placed on his doorstep early in the morning and slipped away, putting my car into neutral and coasting down the hill before I started the engine. The basket was stocked with pears, eggs, butter, tarragon, a baguette, jam, coffee, cream, and a slim volume by Henry James about traveling in Italy. I felt very sly and happy at the time to surprise him on his one day off. These personal touches at unexpected times that were so heartfelt concerning Antoine had their genesis as a means for me to throw people a bit off balance, a volatile star an overprotective agent, a spendthrift producer, and assert my gently gained dominance. With him, it drew us closer together. 
In regards to that gift basket for Antoine, in the late afternoon of Christmas Day, he left a message on the answering machine thanking me for the bounty. I was alerted to the call on my personal line by high school senior Jake, who, walking into the living room where I was watching the ornaments on the tree sparkle in the sunshine, said, There's some guy. I guess he must be an actor or something. Well, he's talking on your machine. Really talking. Good talking or bad talking? I asked, fearing a business intrusion into the holiday. Yeah, good, I guess. It's that happy talk. Fizzing over and you can't stop it. I think he's still going. He was. Jake was right. My friend was in mid-monologue, but still I didn't pick up the phone. I listened. As Antoine told me in the following weeks, he wasn't alone that Christmas morning when the basket appeared on his doorstep. So maybe the standing O performance on the telephone wasn't just for me. The lead on the film had flown in from New York for the part, knew nobody in Los Angeles, and it just didn't feel right having her spend Christmas alone, he elucidated. Besides, it helps an actress trust you if you show a personal interest in her. I assumed that was some kind of euphemism for sex. Undoubtedly, this was some not-so-secret Director's Guild code passed from one male generation to the next. I think my response was, ah, good to know. He missed her as she had flown back to Manhattan, and not only wasn't he in a relationship, even worse, Antoine was in between projects, and he was a guy who liked to keep busy. Taking time alone with his thoughts was not something he did willingly, maybe because the thoughts were always there, clamoring and insistent. I had seen him when they began to overwhelm. Instead of the cosmopolitan flourish of his ways and the heartbeat flush of excitement in his face, his pallor would be washed out, his palate dulled, and his words monosyllabic. It didn't happen often, but when it did, he didn't even look like himself. Shep didn't trust him. Cooper barely noticed his existence, and when he did, he would only comment, as he recalled, that Antoine Benton didn't take direction well. well. Why all this background on Antoine and me? To illustrate that working relationships in the movie business, more than any other I can think of, are deeply personal, just as Mr. Booker had said. If I connected with a curious story of Antoine's or a flicker of his humor inspired a fantastic tale over the dinner table, the likelihood he would deliver a script that would ignite my interest within two weeks was extremely high. He was observant, unique, intense, edgy, and fast, all characteristics I admired in a director. Even with those attributes, Antoine's fourth project with me years later was troubled. He had updated an old movie franchise in a way I thought brilliant and fresh. His casting was inventive. We paid the interested parties who were attached to the film 35 years ago an astonishing amount of money. Most of those players, if they weren't arthritic or senescent, would have done somersaults over the windfall, and others, the original director, groused, cashed his check, and celebrated his fresh millions by marrying the 38-year-old nurse who had seen him through a hip replacement. Back to the film. An experienced and expert crew was assembled. Sets were built. Cameras rolled. 
The first week of dailies were spellbinding. If I were going to predict anything, it would have been fair skies and smooth sailing. All the indicators were there, but I hadn't been paying attention to the depths. In order to understand how friendships sink under the weight of the studio system, I offer a fable. Confessions of a Studio Chief You may call me Miss Mittens, and while we're at it, I've got another idea for you to swallow. My cat decides everything. That's how studio films are made. Tell no one. Shall we see if I can explain without letting the cat out of the bag? And by cat, I mean some shadowy figure resembling a studio head. I'm not talking indie. No rogue cats who play by their own rules. I'm talking show kitties with multinational big brand bosses. Imagine, if you will, a multitude of scripts that make their way from the hot little MacBook of the author through channels to the paws of Top Cat. While traveling this perilous route, the script has been batted around, sometimes harbored, sometimes swiped at. By the time it lands in front of Signor or Signora Gatto, it has been extensively nibbled at. What does extensively nibbled at mean? I'll give you an example. There are some players in Hollywood whose taste for a project can translate to $20 million in their pockets on the first day of principal photography. Bear in mind this player just nibbled. They are attached to the script. They aren't slated to write it, direct it, budget it, design it, or film it. How yummy. Get a particularly savory script, something that could resurrect a franchise, in front of Top Cat, and you can have players mewling for staggering amounts of money. This puts our cat into a bind. After everyone has had their fill, there's not a tremendous amount of money left to produce and market the film. We'll take a hypothetical example. Say the cost of feeding those hungry cats amounts to $60 million. That leaves $140 million to construct the movie, put the film in the can, make the digital capture, whatever. I mean, put the damn thing on the screen. I know that sounds like a lot of cat food, but for big splashy extravaganzas with tons of visual effects, factor in at least another 60 million. Then there are the movie stars' salaries, advertising campaigns, the money paid to the crew who actually create a fictional world and film it is overshadowed by a myriad of other costs. You get what I'm saying. Once all is said and done, this hypothetical film we've been discussing will have to pull in $400 million at the box office to break even. Now, there aren't a lot of movies that hit that target. What's a cat to do? Particularly, what's a cat to do if half the upfront money has been spent? Well, they consider their networks, the mandates of the studio, and they either kill that movie or keep shooting it. Kill it or shoot it, cat and mouse. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed the story, please tell a friend.